0: Welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. In this Healing 101 episode, I have the honor of speaking to Wendy Robinson, the Head of Services for Campaigning Against Living Miserably Calm. Wendy's extensive experience in the field of mental health and her role at Calm have equipped her with a deep understanding of the pressing issue of suicide prevention. Calm is dedicated to helping individuals who are in the darkest depths of despair, feeling that suicide is their only escape. Wendy delves into the critical issue of rising suicide rates, shedding light on the socioeconomic groups that are disproportionately affected. She emphasizes the importance of destigmatizing the word suicide, dispelling the myth that discussing it may plant the idea in someone's mind. Instead, open dialogue can be a lifeline for those in crisis. Wendy also highlights a crucial point. Suicide doesn't always manifest in an obvious manner underlining the need for vigilant awareness and support in our communities. This episode reminds us of the importance of reaching out and fostering a culture of empathy, understanding and support for those in need. Could you tell us about CALM? What does CALM stand for and what does it do as an organisation?
1: Yeah, of course. So CALM stands for the Campaign Against Living Miserably. So we're really taking a stand against suicide. We are a suicide prevention charity, but we look at that in a very wide way. So we look at it from the end of thinking, you know, somebody that's absolutely fine all the way across, right to the point of where you really feel that you have no other option than to take your own life. And we see that as a kind of, you know, we're all susceptible possibly to struggles with mental health. Anything can happen at any time to make life feel too difficult to go on and I guess, you know, at Calm, we want to address that, provide support for people, but also change the conversation around mental health and suicide. So it becomes something that people don't carry shame around. Because uh, certainly what we know about suicide is that it really does thrive when people kind of feel that shame and that feel that they can't reach out and talk about it. So we're really there to kind of promote the idea that life is always worth living and to really do as much as we can, whether it's providing life-saving services, which we have a helpline that does that. But we also really want to change the national conversation around suicide and mental health, to change the shame and stigma, as I've said, but also to bring people together in as many ways as we possibly can, because that's another way to be um, protective of each other and ourselves if we feel connected. Because often it's that sense of isolation uh, and having to do everything on your own that can really lead to feeling that life's not any miserable, but perhaps not worth living. So we're there to really kind of fight on all of those levels to support people to feel that life is good. So
0: I'm going to throw out a statistic because I think the work you're doing is so phenomenal. In 2021 alone, the Calm Helpline received 276,648 telephone calls for help across a range of issues, including financial stress, anxiety, addiction, and relationships. So how do you help people on the helplines who are in crisis mode? Because for your volunteers and your employees, it must be incredibly hard. And I'm a big ambassador for Shout. And the training involved in equipping people with the skills to talk someone out of taking their own life is tremendous. So um how do you do that?
1: something to say straight off is that where we kind of stand apart sometimes from some of the other fantastic services that are out there is every one of the people that works on our helpline is actually a trained professional we don't work with volunteers now that's not to say that volunteers can't do marvelous stuff but um because we wanted to really take the point of view of being quite interventionist in the way that that we work to be able to have a a skilled and, and trained staff team felt like the right way so the model that we use is called Egan's Skilled Helper Model, which may be of interest to people to kind of look into a little bit more. But the thing about it for us is that it's really about supporting people and coaching people and counselling. It's a real mix of that and it's about empowering. So it's a model that really looks at sort of, you know, the situation somebody might be in at the moment, but also focusing really in on what do you want life to be like instead? What could it be like? What might it have been like before? And really kind of engage that person in imagining something different. And I think when you rightly said someone's at that real crisis point, their view is in one direction and one direction only quite often. And they've seen that there's only one option. So for us, the model that we're operating is actually to expand that, to see that there are other opportunities or other things and how can we help you achieve that? Sometimes it's just about helping somebody stay in the, in the next hour, even in the next moment. So it's about having a wider view, but really pulling it back into kind of what can you do today to stay safe? What can you do in the next hour? Uh, What can you do in the next minute even? And I think as well, because what we want to do at CALM is not only look at it from that crisis point of view, it's that sort of, um, as you said, then you've know we got people that call us that might be around any number of issues. So if somebody is really struggling financially and can't see a way out, they can't provide for their families or they feel that they've let their family down and they've you know, again, all those kind of things that add up to then a risk factor of feeling like maybe suicide's the only way out. And our helplines are all about kind of expanding that, really sitting with somebody in that pain and acknowledging where they are, not undermining it in any way, but then actually reflecting back to somebody that they are valuable, that they do matter, that there lots of people feel like this, and there is always hope, there is way out. And I think it's that it's engaging with somebody to help them sort of widen the view that's got very, very sort of narrow and very dark. And how
0: frequently can someone call? I mean, do you have a limit on, say, someone keeps calling every, I mean, it can, I I imagine some people can get obsessive and they can start calling every hour. How do you put parameters around how much support you're, you are able to offer each individual?
1: Yeah. I mean, what we, what we found in the helpline certainly is that if somebody is in a really quite some kind of crisis space or in that, you know not only is having thought that suicide might be a, a, an option, but starting to plan for it, that then we welcome them to call us as many times as they like. But we, we encourage them to kind of do that in a sort of a, a measured way. But what we do find is that people will often call very often in a short period. So maybe for a month or for a couple of weeks where they're in that place. But if they are working with us regularly, then we're helping them through a process where they would need us less. And then they can kind of go uh, either find support services locally or, you know, again, if we're looking with people about not only how do they feel inside, but how they can connect with others, then yes, depend on a helpline for a little while. And then we start to like help you work your way out of that with always the door open to come back if you struggle again, because that can often be the, the case, as I'm sure you'll know through all of your work that, you know, mental health is something that can be fine for a while or it can be for a long while but life happens, you know, we've got our own vulnerabilities, you know, just like physical health. We don't expect to always be physically well, you know, we, we have a, a simple system, don't we? You go to your GP or there's things you can do to help yourself. So I think for us, it's about trying to help people see that mental well-being and physical well-being. let's approach it in the same sort of way. If you've got an issue, reach out and get some help. But certainly we, we encourage people to use our service when they can, but our work is always about helping them and empowering them so they don't need that. Necessarily every day or forevermore. Do you put people on a structured
0: program? So, for example, if, if there is a frequency of calls coming in, do you when when you refer them on to other services, is there a plan that's implemented, or is it completely dependent on the individual? And is it completely up to them to enforce their own plan?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, and again going back to that word empower, which I think is so important. I mean, I've le- I've worked in services. Supporting people for a long time, and whether it's kind of a child, a young person, or an adult, we still want to help somebody feel that they have the power within them to actually kind of manage things. So, although we might work to something that, you know, all of our staff are trained in understanding suicide risk, protective factors, how to engage, how to motivate, how to help somebody feel, you know, valued, they have all that skill set. It's really about how do we help that person believe those things for themselves. In terms of suicide, quite often people work to a safety plan, which is just a kind of, I always think it's a fancy word of just helping somebody see what to do when they get into a really difficult situation, what's worked before, who can they reach out. So I think the way that we work is, is quite soft in some respects so that the individual doesn't feel that they've had an intervention don't feel that they've been kind of like taken through a, a program. Some people like that kind of thing, and maybe they'd get that if they were referred into a face-to-face service of some kind. But I think at the helpline, we're very much of a kind of informal conversational flow where the worker is utilizing all the skills that they've got. But for the person that they're speaking to, it feels like speaking to a, a caring friend or someone. Uh, we never want people to feel like, you know, as much as we are trained professionals doing the work, we don't want that person to feel that they've been you know treated by a professional in some kind of distance sort of way because that whole thing about connection you know what we hear from people quite often and you know i can relate this to myself in times when i've i've struggled when you're in that place with yourself even though rationally you might know that people care there's something telling you that you don't deserve it or that you're on your own or nobody will understand you know even though that person's been in a difficult situation it's not the same as mine and and so when you reach out to a helpline what we all appreciate at our helpline is that that's a massively courageous thing to do in the first place so actually just to feel that somebody's there to listen and to understand and that that moment of connection and so, you know, you may not feel connected to your wider family, you may not feel connected to your community, but if you, in that 20 minutes that you talk to us, feel connected to one other human being, that for us is the start of that building that sort of ladder back towards your own life where you do feel connected to people that are, are closer.
0: And I mean, now at the rising lit rates of suicide, I mean, the latest statistic is 125 lives are lost a week to suicide in the UK alone. And I mean, I'm curious as to why you think the number's rising so quickly.
1: Yeah. I and mean, it's been studied for a little while, but has definitely risen. Um, and I think something really interesting in that is that, you know, the view that we take at CARM is that every single death by suicide is preventable. Now, that's not to put blame on an individual who feels that that's the way, you know, the only option that they've got. What we're really saying by that is that there is so much we can do. You know, if there, there might be, if somebody loses their life to a, a chronic illness or a disease, there's so many pointers at play there. But when you look at suicide, that 125 people, if support, intervention, and connection was provided at a certain point in time, then that life could not have been lost. And I guess, you know, life just seems to be getting more complex and complicated. And obviously, we know at the moment we're all struggling with whole issues around cost of living and. Lots of questions and worries about climate change. Is it a lot to undermine our sense of security? I mean, we're not long out of the pandemic, are we? It's a distant memory in some respects, but it's not that long ago and kind of the world was turned on its access. And I think it can leave people feeling personally somehow that I'm not managing, I'm not coping. And I think that's an important point that we have to make about perhaps some of the rises can be attributable to the way that we've moved in society, it's back to that sense of connection again. It's almost become so much that we're all individualized to such a degree that, you know, it, we 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 take the blame on ourselves. If I'm finding life hard, it must be me. Rather than actually society might be really struggling at the moment. There's a whole host of things going on, and whether you look at that from a political point of view, whether you look that look at that from a sociological, a psychological, you can look at it in so many different through so many different lenses. But I think the important part is that, you know, for human beings to understand if I feel overwhelmed, perhaps it's because life is overwhelming. And quite often we don't make that connection. We say, I'm overwhelmed because something wrong with me. And actually sometimes feeling overwhelmed is actually a normal and understandable response for the situation you're in. You know, if you've had a traumatic upbringing, you've had some difficulties, you've lost your job. Any range of things that can happen to any of us, really. If you take that in as being entirely your own fault, then you can see how it's not too many steps away from feeling like actually is life worth living. So I think we have to be really careful to make sure that people know that suicide is a societal issue, not really a personal issue. And In order to really prevent it, yes, we need to arm people with more strategies to cope with difficulty, to be resilient, to make sure we've got services that support people who've had traumatic experiences, but we also need to say that, you know, human beings are both vulnerable and strong, and if society or what's happening around the world is too much, uh, as it might be, then of course human beings are going to feel like it's too much So I think it's really important to keep that in mind that it's not just the individual, it's the context within which they're living.
0: hurt to healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Can you identify any socioeconomic groups who are particularly susceptible to suicide? I mean, I know that there's a huge increase in uh, suicide amongst women between, yeah, I mean, under the age of 24, which is to me just really startling. And I mean, yeah. there are some people who say that it's more common amongst men after a certain age, and particularly men in their 20s seem to be, you know, a group that are quite susceptible and vulnerable i'd
1: love to know your thoughts i mean i guess suicide is one of those things it it's quite uh, equitable in some ways it doesn't you know the reason why you might be feeling suicidal or the reason why you might be really struggling with your mental health might be different depending on whether you're female whether you're male whether you're in this uh, socioeconomic group or, or not so all of those things can add to the struggle or or can reduce it in some ways and i think it's really important when you work in in suicide prevention or supporting anyone in any way is to understand how the risk factors are different for different groups, but not to kind of become complacent and think only one group is more at risk than another group. the interesting fact around the kind of male-female divide, if we were to reduce it into that sort of binary terms, which often we, we do, I think it's really fascinating. Uh, I'm really curious to think about the fact that more men complete suicide, but more women attempt suicide. And so we can look at the stats and see, look, there are many more men that have lost their lives by suicide than women and feel like, okay, we need to focus on supporting men, which of course we do. But then if you look at the other piece of it, which is actually more women attempt, but it doesn't actually result in the end of their life. Also what's going on there, the fact that you mentioned there as well about the rise in young women. So it's still a very small percentage within the wider set of figures. But the important bit there is how fast it's rising. And we did some research fairly recently around that. And another reason is you know why we did a campaign with um, Frank Kirby, one of the lionesses, who thankfully you know gratefully worked with us to help us kind of highlight this issue. Because what we found out with our research around young know, women, once we saw that stat, once we saw it was rising so fast, we were like, we have to un- understand this more. And what we found really worrying within that was actually that young women were finding that when they reached out for help and support, they didn't get the help that they expected to get. You know, they had experiences where they were kind of undermined or not uh, taken seriously enough, seen as kind of being dramatic or making a fuss when there really wasn't one. There's also an assumption that as women, we will always have a group of friends that we feel safe and and able to talk with things about. So there was sort sort of an undermining of that person, perhaps needing specialist support. And that is just really, really not good enough because I think when you reach out for help, you're at a really vulnerable point. And the last thing you need is anybody to make you feel that you're not actually deserving of that, or, you know, you should just kind of go away and sort it out for yourself. You know, so when we did the work, uh, the campaign with Frank Kirby from the Lionesses, that was, you know, thankfully she worked with us to kind of get that message across because the message there and what we learned from kind of women's football is as soon as anybody goes down on, on the pitch, then her teammates come around her and gather and make sure, you know, close in to protect and find out what's going on. So not only to support, but to kind of protect that person for the, from the glare of others. And we just thought that was a great model for what we would like to kind of encourage uh, women, young women especially, to be doing for themselves. I mean, before I worked at Karma, I, I worked at Childline and we had so many calls around suicide. When I first went there, uh, I was so kind of like shocked really to see how many children and young people were coming forward with suicide as a concern. And I think it's just so incredibly sad, isn't it, to think that you're at the start of your life and you feel that there isn't a life waiting for you. And I think we can look at all sorts of factors and, you know, I think social media does massively wonderful things for people and that can be such a source of connection and support, but it's got a reverse as well where people can feel that they're, they don't have a switch off. There's no time for them to kind of recover from a comparison or, you know, we see people's curated best lives often on social media and then you compare your real life, you know, and it doesn't kind of often match up and. So I I think there's so many pressures on young people today, but we still go back to the same solution. If you like that, that sense of staying in connection with others, supporting each other, and if somebody comes to you with a worry and seems to not be doing okay, don't ever kind of minimize it. Just sit with that person and and help them think through what's going on. And I, I think something as well that we really always say to people is, don't be afraid of the word suicide. Still sticks in people's throats. It's kind of like, you know, we've been brought up with it as a kind of, you know, turbo subject quite often. And there's a real fear that people still carry that if I were to say to somebody that I was worried about, if I were to say, often when people are struggling in the way that you've shared with me, they can feel that life's not worth living. I'm just wondering, have you considered taking your own life at any point? You know, people worry about saying that as if it would put the idea into somebody's head or if they're already thinking of it, it would kind of trigger them to do it. And actually the absolute opposite is true. It's like bursting the bubble. And then that person can kind of like be relieved that they can share it and tell you about it. That's something obviously we do on the helpline, but it's something that people really, we want to encourage people to have some confidence around using that sort of language because often it is that thing of like, wow, that person feels seen as well. They're like, I didn't realize I was making it quite obvious. And people often ask about signs and symptoms and how can I tell? We did a big campaign called The Last Photo, which showed photographs of people not long before their lives came to an end and, you know, they were all smiling and happy and seemed to be fine. The point we were trying to make with that really is that suicide doesn't always look suicidal. So as much as we can try and arm you with a whole list of things to look for, actually it's not that straightforward, you know, so go with your gut instinct, look at if people are changing in some way um, and then don't be afraid to actually use those words.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I um, I interviewed Professor Rory O'Connor, who's I'm sure you've come across. Oh, yeah. Um, lovely, lovely man. And um, he yeah. said, actually, one of the most telling red flags that you should be aware of is when someone's been very depressed and down, suffering from suicidal thoughts, And then suddenly they have this month or week or whatever of unexplained euphoria. And suddenly they seem to have come out of this depression and they've got a bounce in their stride again. And he said, that's when you really need to be concerned. And that's when you really need to say, you know, how are you doing? As you say, address the issue of suicide directly, because I think not enough people know that you assume Right. Well, that person's obviously out of you know out of the woods. Great. They're they're feeling better, and in Absolutely. fact, it's like they've almost made that decision. They've got the closure. They know that they're going to sadly take their own life, and and that's it. And they, and they have that blissful sort of escapism, knowing that the end is near. It's so easy to slip under the radar. It really is, and that's why I think you know, as the calm CEO Simon Gunning has said, it's like we need to have societal and individual change. It can't just be the individual and it can't just be society there needs to be a a combination of the two which i think again is is
1: really important
0: and that again feeds into the amazing work that calms doing
1: i think the point that you made there about it's counterintuitive isn't it that if you see you know you've, you've been worried about somebody and they seem to be okay of course you're going to be like great it's counterintuitive to think oh this is a sign that it's actually really got worse because they seem fine because they they can see an end to their struggling I think it's so important as well, though, for anybody who has lost somebody. We say, you know, we work with lots of bereaved families um, and individuals at Calm, and lots of people call our helpline who have been bereaved. And what we really say is, as much as, you know, people might think, oh, I should have, could have done this if only I'd known this and if only I'd known that. I think it's really important for anyone bereaved to know that often it can be beyond your reach. Somebody can be beyond our reach. And sometimes, you know, again, that's why helplines like ours um, exist. Sometimes it's talking to a stranger that is kind of the way to go because, you know, you might be wanting to make sure you're not burdening your family. And I think that's that burdensomeness. That's a really important one to bear in mind as well. If somebody's saying to you, oh, you'd be better off without me. I am such a burden to everybody. I'm such a, that sense of burden because quite often the person loves the people that are around them so much. And again, it seems counterintuitive, but they love the people around them so much and they feel a burden to them they genuinely believe those people would be better off without them. So it's a very strange kind of upside down way of showing love. I love my family so much. I don't want them to have to keep living with me like this. And I think that's again, a bubble to burst when you're working with somebody who feels like that to help them see that your family and the people that love you would rather you with them no matter what. And that actually there is no better off without. And that's something to really help you know somebody who's suicidal consider especially if they're thinking that you know they're doing it as a way of, of helping their loved ones have a, an easier or better life but yeah I think if you've lost someone it's really important not to blame yourself I think that you could have done anything So yes we do want to empower people to be able to um speak about it and intervene and know what some of the signs are but when you've lost somebody it's so important not to take that all on yourself as well
0: yeah and I, and I think as you said it's they often do feel like a burden and that is the crucial role that a family and the supporters can play. Because although, yes, of course, it puts a huge strain on close family members and friends. And of course, it it does have a knock-on effect on everyone's mental health, really, when you've got someone very close to you who's very depressed and who is suicidal. But essentially, it's making them aware that, of course, you're there for them. And of course, you're going to sit by them. Because I think the loneliness and the isolation and, again, that feeling of being a burden it's fatal.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, I know that Mind also tried to instate a suicide prevention minister, but after the pandemic, it sadly kind of all went slightly kaput. Is Calm trying to lobby the government to do something about that and to try and instate something on on a governmental level?
1: Yeah, Calm will always put pressure where pressure needs to be put. And, you know, because we say we've got to make change on societal level and support individuals, then then of course the government is some, you know, an area that we're always looking at and trying to make sure that they are aware of the responsibilities that they have. And, you know, it's it's a shame, isn't it, that it falls to charities in many respects. I think with great country that we're in, that we have so many charities to do what they, they do, but we can't just be shouting into the dark and into an empty space if that's not being heard by government and you know, if the government is not accepting that. The more needs to be done. Recently, there's a, a suicide strategy that's come out and then there's kind of funding, a little bit of funding coming behind that. But, you know, it can't just be targets. It can't just be, you know, some funding. It's got to be a, a holistic piece of work. So yes, we are, we're always kind of like uh, making a nuisance of ourselves. We like to be quite disruptive if we can at Calm. <laughs> so that's definitely something that we, that we want to see. I think something that um, was really interesting that we've started to find out Is coming through from the pandemic, which links with this whole sense of belonging and connection. Whereas we might have thought that suicide rates would have gone up during that time because it was a really difficult time for everybody. Actually, there's evidence that they dropped. Researchers have started to dig into that a little bit to wonder why. Now, there may be some parts of it that are to do with the simple stuff of like people being locked in. (laughs) So they weren't able to, you know, kind of have the means by which to take their lives. But actually, what's being found a little bit when digging even further, is that there was a sense of us all in it together. There was a sense that everybody was going through a difficult time. So somebody who was really struggling and feeling suicidal, they actually were seeing on the news and hearing, you know, lots of stories of struggle. Now that's that gave comfort as in we're all human, we're all in it together, we're all having a hard time. So their need to kind of feel about suicide as a way out seemed to kind of like reduce. So I think that tells us quite a lot, doesn't it? that we do need to all feel it like we're in it together. We're in life together. (laughs) We're in a wish to live less miserably. It's something we're all in together rather than, oh, those few poor people over there that can't cope and that have mental health problems and then the rest of us are getting on fine. And that's where we have to kind of break down that sense of an us and them. And that if you're not okay, you're in a minority and you should be ashamed of yourself. Actually, we need to pull it back in of kind of like life is hard. Life is also wonderful. How could we do it together in a way that when any of us are struggling, you know, that's what society kind of means, I think. I mean, I'm I'm an old socialist, so I believe in these kind of things that, you know, it's individual and collective. And when it comes to suicide prevention, that is an absolute answer to all of it, really. Absolutely. And I think, as you so aptly
0: said, that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And we need to really re-emphasize that to people. I mean, it might seem like an option now but actually you've really got to believe that there is hope there are those glimmers of light and they will get brighter and brighter as time goes on but it's just you've got to trudge through the mud sometimes to get to the other side and it can be so so painful but by taking your own life it just feels like you know you you need to give yourself time and as you said you're not alone and and in fostering community and connection we can really hope to change that
1: I think mental health challenges are kind of such a cruel thing that goes on because the very thing you need is the very thing you can't believe in anymore. (laughs) So the very thing you need is to feel connected and to believe in relationship and to believe in in kind of authentic connection. It's it's just, it feels like you're, you're behind glass and everything's over there and you don't even really, you can't see that how it's ever going to apply to you. Something we say all the time at calm is stay, stay. And I think, you know, for me, it's about stay and survive, survive what you're going through, get support, and then you can start to thrive. There's a kind of a process to go, but you definitely won't get to that part if you, if you're not able to stay. And, you know, it's incumbent on all of us, isn't it, to kind of be there for others, but also to try in whatever way we can to know we all get into difficulties, but there are ways to come out the other side of that.
0: And I'd love to finish by asking you what calm advises people who are supporting someone with suicidal thoughts and someone who is incredibly depressed, what is the most helpful
1: thing that friends and family members, partners can do? First of all, I think people who are trying to help need to kind of really uh, look and make sure they're getting support for themselves because it can be quite a thing. Really sort of think about before you have the conversation, what you're going to say, how you might sort of word it how you might let that person know that, you know, you yourself have had some struggles and that's why you can recognize it in them. If you don't feel that there's a right time to sort of speak about it in a more direct way. And as I've mentioned already about actually saying the the words around suicide or asking someone directly if they've considered not carrying on, but also to sort of keep an eye on them, check in with their other people in their lives to see if you're not the only one that's feeling like you you do uh, and see if you can kind of build up a better picture but also kind of engage with them in a normal kind of way. Try and engage them in doing things together or going around to see them or something. It's so like anything that reduces that sense of isolation, go ahead and ask, do that asking. But within the asking, not only how are you or are you feeling like you can't go on, but asking how might I help you? What do you need at the moment? What might help you get through today? Is there anything you're really worried about? Is there anything that you think is going to happen that you know you can't get through? So it's asking that person quite directly how they think you could help them or what they might need at the moment. Because you know what they might need at the moment is that not to be left on their own. What they might need at the moment is to be left on their own, but to be checked in on. So I think you have to engage with that person to ask them what they need. And also don't uh, put too much pressure on yourself to be the person who can fix it and sort it all out you might be better serving your friend or family member by just making sure you provide them with a range of things that they could do to reach out, whether it be the GP, whether it be calling our helpline, a range of places that they could go because sometimes talking to a stranger is actually what feels more doable than actually opening up to your friend or family member. So a whole range of those things. And if you can't remember everything I've just said, then I just say go to our website We've got loads of resources on there about how to be a mate, how to help somebody who might be suicidal. So, you know, reach out and get support for yourself because yeah, it can be a difficult thing to do to support somebody who's really in a dark place. Absolutely. And we'll put all of the links to
0: Calm in in the show notes. And Wendy, just thank you for all the phenomenal work that you do and that Calm does. And I'm so grateful that you took the time to give us such a powerful episode today. So thank you.
1: You're welcome. And, you know, your work in your podcast is just so lovely. And I think that the message that we're giving, you can go from hurt to healing and you can go from healing to living a life that isn't miserable. And I think that's just such a powerful thing that we need to make sure that people can hold on to because that's what you need to know when you're in a dark place. So thank you too.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.